Well, welcome everybody. Speaking of generosity, as the teams are coming down here, um, a couple of weeks ago we talked about uh, what it looks like to be generous, and it's uh, we talked about generosity as part of our core values, and one of the things that we wanted to express in that is that generosity is more than just giving of our time. It's it's the relationships we have with people. So we started this giving board that you can see right over here by the door on the way out. And uh, that a couple of weeks ago was amazing. We, we had people come and boldly bring their needs to us that they had needs like just um, one, one was rent. A couple of people were students that needed laptops for school. And we just wanted to present those to the church so people could see that. And then if they felt led by the, the Spirit to meet those needs, to do so. And we had every need met. We had somebody's rent paid for the month. We had a couple computers. Just God did some amazing things. And we want to keep that a reality in our church. So if you look at that board over there, there's three needs there. There's a couple. One of them's I think, a job and then a need for a printer. And then I think there's, there's one more over there. I can't remember what it is. So um, we want to keep that heart of generosity in our church always forward. And so if there's something that you have a need that God, um, you have in your life and, and, and you just want to bring that to us, if you want to do it anonymously, you can put it on your card um, before you come out. You can drop it in that box or one of the boxes out there. And we just want to see God meet tangible needs in our church through one another as we are generous, just beyond our, 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 our giving, um, also just the folks that we want to interact with in the community as well. We want to be the church in that way. So I want to start a little differently today. Um, I want to start with a story. It may be a story you've heard of before. Um, it may not be. In fact, I bet a lot of you have never heard this story. It comes from the, um, the Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel, and it's a story that's easy to overlook if you are not careful because uh, there's a lot of very difficult names and strange things happening and backstory, and so it's easy to just slide on by and forget. But the story is dealing with King David, and I don't know if you know anything about King David, but he was anointed king by Samuel, and then there's another 15 years between his anointing as king and him actually coming onto the throne as king. So during this period, he was being chased by the then king, who was named Saul, and, and this guy was basically chasing him for 15 years, trying to kill him. So even though he has this anointing as king upon him, the king that God had rejected, Saul, was still after him day in and day out. And that was hard enough, but the thing that made it awkward was is that Saul's son, Jonathan, was one of his best friends. They were extremely close. And so David had this, this bit of a tension there relationally as Saul wanted to kill him, but Saul's son was so close to him, was, was as close as he could get. So when, when Saul and Jonathan, we see later on, they die in battle with the Philistines, it's very bittersweet for David because it means for David, finally, this battle I've been facing, this guy that's been chasing me for years and years and years is finally dead, but I also lost my best friend. So after the battle, Saul's descendants and, and are, are, are spreading out and they're running away and they've been defeated and, and David begins to battle the Philistines and he defeats the Philistines, which is the rival kingdom that was always giving Israel trouble. And, and David in 2 Samuel 9, he does something odd. Um, after this has settled and after there's a sense of, okay, I'm now on the throne, I now know who I am, I now have this opportunity to just relish the power that I finally know that I have. David does something very unlikely of what we know of leaders. 2 Samuel 9 verse 1 says this, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul 
that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. So how, somehow in all the, the victories and the weariness of being in battle and the weariness of being chased for 15 years, David still has this heart of kindness. And kindness really doesn't even do it justice. See, the word in Greek, and the Hebrew, excuse me, the word is hesed, which means more than just simple, I'm being nice to you. It means a loyal, steadfast, covenant love. A love that I promise that will not break. And so David's heart is moved with compassion for the family of Jonathan. Moved with this hesed, covenant love, even for the family of his enemies. So the story keeps going. In verse 2, it says, There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left in Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There, there is still jo- Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The king asked him, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant. He replied, now there is a lot of great names in the Bible, (laughs) believe me, but Mephibosheth is at least top three, I would say. And if any of y'all are pregnant right now, I dare you, (laughs) I dare you to name your son Mephibosheth or daughter, what the heck, go for it. (laughs) Call him Phoebe or something, I don't know. So it's an amazing name, but you know, in, in the Hebrew language, in, in their culture, every name means something. It's very specific the way they name people. So that name of Phibosheth, it literally means out of the mouth of shame. And Lodabar, where he's living, where he's actually in hiding because he's afraid that someone from, from David's throne is going to come and kill him because he's still related to the enemy. Lodabar means place of no rest. We find out earlier in the story, why why is he disabled? He's disabled because in the fear of battle, when he found out that Saul and Jonathan had been defeated and killed, his his nurse grabbed him, picked him up, and said he's five years old. You see this earlier in 2 Samuel, picked him up, and in in the heat of running from battle, drops him. And from a very early age, he is permanently disabled. Cannot walk in either one, of his, either one of his feet, which is horrific thinking about that. And, and living and hiding away from this old regime, not only that, but being in a time where the, the value of life for someone who was living with a disability would have been very, very low. They could just easily kill him and not think anything about it. This person literally lived in shame, in a place of no rest, feeling like the lowest of low. And so then he gets this message, being brought before the king. And I'm sure Mephibosheth, I'm sure everybody connected with Mephibosheth knew, I'm found. This is it. The enemy has found me. He knows I'm related to Saul, and he's going to bring me to his castle. He's going to bring me to the kingdom, and he is going to kill me. But this is how David responds as he comes before him. He says, don't be afraid. 
David said to him. Since I intend to show you kindness, has said covenant love for the sake of your father Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you would take an interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attention attendant Ziba, and he said to him, I have given to you, your master's grandson, all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. That's an incredible story. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David at all. Nothing, nothing to give. And yet what does the king do? He not only restores his father's land to him, which at the time, that's, that's more than just saying I got a plot of land. That means I belong in society. That means I have standing because I own land now. So he has the standing back in society, in Israel, in the land of his father and his grandfather. But then Beyond that, he gives Mephibosheth a seat at the king's table. This is not just a new standing. This is a new identity. This is dignity. This is something that for so long, for his entire life, this man did not have. But rather, the chesed, the steadfast, loyal, covenant love of the king had transformed his life forever. So why do we talk about this story? We've been in this series about our core values, about our core identities. Uh, earlier in January, we talked about how we're, we are disciples, meaning everything we do is about following Jesus, about becoming like Jesus, becoming his apprentice, and shaping us in his restoration to restore the world. And if that's true, we know that we're not supposed to do that together. So our second value is we are family Uh, We follow Jesus together. We live like a family. We have common practices. We have common uh, values, and we do it together. We share this common vision together. A couple weeks ago, we talked about we are generous, which is actually our fourth one that flows out of the one we're talking about today. But today, if we are disciples and we are family, then we believe the family of God forms the way we understand our third value, which is we are welcoming. And in the story we just heard, it it may have been beyond gracious for David to restore this land and wealth of his family back to Mephibosheth, but what David did was more. David gave this man, through this inward restoration that came with a renewed identity, he gave him a seat at the table. And this cannot be understated. What it means to give Mephibosheth Not just something to make him feel better, but to give him a place to sit and belong. You see, in the scriptures, there is a common pattern you see with the idea of the table, with the idea of eating together. It has profound significance. In Jewish thought, to share a meal with someone was an act of solidarity, which is why Jesus was always in trouble. Because he was always eating with the wrong people. Jesus was constantly eating with with religious people he wasn't supposed to, with sinners he wasn't supposed to. The Pharisees even labeled him a glutton and a drunkard, not because he ate too much and drank too much, but because he hung out with people who did. 
So they threw him into that. Jesus made meals central to his reality. Tim Chester points out, he says, Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. I can get behind that. Can you? Because meals bring us up close and personal with one another. It's one thing to be in a room like this, but when you, we are breaking bread together, when we are sitting across the table from one another, we are close. We share our stories. At our best, we are vulnerable. And that's where Jesus meets people. Not where they should be, but where we actually are. That's how Jesus meets us. So the argument then, and just as often as it is now, is if we share fellowship with people who are involved in such unscrupulous behavior as Jesus did, it's tantamount to accepting their behavior. Jesus ate with tax collectors, didn't he? Do you think that Jesus approved of the tax collector policy of basically taking all of the money from poor people and giving it to the people in power? Do you think Jesus approved of that? No. But yet Jesus shared a meal with the tax collectors. Jesus dined with prostitutes. But, but do you think Jesus was okay with, with these women having their bodies exploited for the pleasure of others? Is Jesus okay with that? No, of course he is not. Acceptance and approval are never one and the same. And what's so fascinating about Jesus is that Jesus is more holy than anyone that's ever lived, and yet Jesus was more welcoming than anyone that's ever lived. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus attracted the kind of people that weren't holy, but Jesus was not unholy. Jesus was God in flesh, and yet the wrong kind of people always wanted to be around him. Which makes me think maybe we should be that way. Maybe the wrong kind of people should want to be around us. Maybe holiness is not something that pushes people away. There's a common saying that we, we say about God being so holy he can't get near sin. And then I just say to that, Jesus. Jesus seemed to be pretty into being around people who were sinners. The people who were the most sinful seemed to be the one who were drawn to him. His compassion and his holiness were not mutually exclusive. His compassion did not compromise his faith. It did not mean that he condoned behavior. It did not mean that he condemned people either. In fact, it clarified who he really was. Again, Tim Chester says this. He says, the table fellowship of Jesus with its ethic of grace rather than reciprocity was creating a new countercultural society in the midst of the empire. The behaviors Jesus demands would collapse the distance between rich and poor, insider and outsider. That's good news. Something about the table of Jesus that just tears down walls. One of my favorite things every week when we gather here is watching people come up and come to their communion teams and take communion and knowing some of your stories and knowing that you are taking the body and blood of Jesus right beside someone who I know you are ideologically and politically opposite to. And how miraculous that is. And how beautiful that is. Because you and I are being discipled on a daily basis to divide. 
We are being discipled to put up walls, to drag people into barriers between one another, and to make sure that we stay our distance from people who are not like us because we are right, right? We're right. And if we're right, then, then the natural response to us being right is that we're better. And we're better than them because we have the truth. And so if we're better, then it just makes, it just makes practical sense that we kind of keep those people over there and us over here. All of us, every single one of us are swimming in that. You are being discipled daily to think and to live like that, whether you know it or not. And some of us are falling into it daily. And then there's Jesus. This is the Jesus who chose two disciples who were politically on the opposite ends of the spectrum. He chose a zealot who was an anti-government person, and he chose a tax collector who was trying to make the government even more powerful. They could not have hated one another more, and yet Jesus intentionally chose two people who were on the opposite ends of that spectrum. This is the same Jesus who had compassion for the oppressed, but yet he refused to dehumanize and hate the oppressor. This is the Jesus who kept hanging out with the wrong people. And chances are, friends, if Jesus were in the flesh today, he would be having dinner with someone that would make you mad. Every single one of you. So just go ahead in your mind right now and think about that politician or that party or those people that you don't like. I guarantee you, if Jesus were here in the flesh, he'd be having dinner and you'd be making something about it on Facebook. (laughs) You'd be angry. Because Jesus was committed to the table because the table was tearing down walls between people. It's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself. Listen to these words here. One, new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I hope you hear what Paul is saying here. He is saying that our unity in Jesus in spite of our differences is a miracle that we have to fight for. Listen, we are the people who tear down walls and build tables. Where people are putting up walls, we tear them down and we build tables to listen to one another, to find community with one another. If you have a wall between you and another follower of Jesus, you put it up. Jesus didn't. And the more that you press into his good news, the more you press into his gospel, I promise you, it begins to crumble. It begins to tear down. We're being discipled to do the opposite. We're being discipled to put up the walls, but as disciples of Jesus, we have an ethic of grace. We're defined by our love for our neighbors, and we're defined by our love for our enemies. That's what makes us followers of Jesus. That's what makes us different from the ways of this world, from the politics of this world, is that we refuse to make you an enemy. 
We will love you. And that's why our third value, our third identity is we are welcoming because we believe that in a divided and hostile world, this, this world that's always pushing us away from one another, the family of God, the church, is the ground zero for showing hospitality and grace for people who are both like us and people who are absolutely not like us. The people who think like us and the people who don't think like us. And is this easy? No. No, it's messy. It requires hard conversations. It requires loving people. It requires repentance. It requires forgiving one another. It requires being willing to be wrong. But is it worth it? Yes. A million times, yes. And I recognize this doesn't come by natural means. It doesn't come by by strategy from man. It comes supernaturally. We need a power beyond ourselves, but I believe we have that power. We need a love that goes beyond our preferences. I believe we have that love. We need grace. You see, what we need to realize here today as we close is that when we think of our story, we aren't David. We are Mephibosheth. You see, we were broken. We fell in the fallenness of ourselves. We are broken, and yet we come before this king of mercy who not only restores who we are, restores our identity, but this king of mercy gives us a place at his table for eternity. That's grace. And to the degree that you and I are humbled by the grace the king gives us is the degree that we will marvel in that grace ourselves and then offer that grace to people outside the walls, to our neighbors and even our enemies because this is what Jesus, friends, has done for us. Romans 5.8 says God proved his own love for us And that while we were still sinners, not when we got our act together, in our mess, at our worst, Jesus died for us. So we're not going to agree on everything. I get that here. Um, But I can promise you this. Even in our disagreements, we're going to save you a seat at the table. We're going to have the hard conversations. And and that's the posture we want to have here in this room for folks that are a part of restoration. That's the posture we want to have for our city as, as we are a welcoming family. We'll, we want to meet you where you are, and we want to bring you to Jesus. I can't meet you at the voting box. I can't meet you at your Facebook post. I can't meet you at the, the cultural ex- expectations that we have today, but by God, I'm going to meet you at Jesus. I'm going to meet you at Jesus, and we will figure it out from there. And that gives us a posture that we like to use the language around here. Our, our, our posture is we move from guest to host, meaning that, that, that we, instead of living as one who, who is being served, we see our lives not as being eternal guests where we expect people to serve us, but we are hosts wherever we are. We expect that we are God's welcoming party in our world. Whether we're at our job or home or, or school, wherever we are, we see ourselves as hosts to welcome people into the kingdom of God no matter where they are. 
So you can do that here through volunteering on Sunday. You can do that through opening up your home for the city group last week as we saw what people's passions and dreams were of how they feel like God was pouring into them. If you were here last week, it was amazing to see some of the responses of what God was stirring in people's hearts. Incredible. Whatever that is, when we see the grace of Jesus for us, something shifts in us and we start to be God's welcoming party wherever we are. That's the kind of church I want to be. And I hope that's the kind of church you want to be. Sky Jathani, he writes a book about this. He says, our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating lighting, the light of heaven. And in our dinner tables are, the, are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. In our churches, people should find rest from their battle for acceptance and release from the lie that they are nothing more than the goods that they possess. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and begin to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. I can't think of anything better today than coming to the table of Jesus. This is why front and center, literally and physically, of our church is this table where we come weekly and remind ourselves that we belong to God and we belong to one another. We remind ourselves that the King of mercy has given us a place at the table, even in our brokenness, even in our need. And so I want to encourage you today, as, as we're about to sing this song, we want to take these elements together. We're going to have prayer teams. Uh, I'll be up here, and then we'll have some folks in the back, too. Let's respond to what God is speaking to us today. Whether you want to take that step of faith with Jesus for the first time, or maybe today's just the day you need to be reminded, right in the middle of the brokenness of our lives, that Jesus has picked you up and he has put you at his table and you belong. Nothing can take that away. So I want to pray over these elements. We take a piece of the bread and we dip it into the juice. We'll have teams on either side. We remember his sacrifice for us. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus, come. Today, if you're unsure, and maybe today's the first time time you have taken that step of faith, come and take the elements as you take Jesus for the very first time today. We welcome you. So, Father, as we were singing those words earlier, we love you forever. We love you forever. Lord, I just got this sense from you that you were singing that right back over us you love us forever you love us with said. you love us with loyal steadfast covenant love that does not break or bend when we do and so Jesus help us to experience that love today thank you for giving us a seat at your table and God may you shape in us the desire today to keep making this table longer and longer and longer and longer so more people can sit at that table. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your grace poured out to us. We pray this in your mighty, gracious name. Amen. Well, let's respond together. You can go ahead and stand. We'll take communion as the communion teams come. And then we'll also, if you need prayer about anything or just wherever God's leading you, Let's respond to him today.